I'm Lindsay Berra, and welcome to Food of the Gods, a podcast that explores how elite athletes eat and train to fuel performance. In these Guru's editions, we'll feature strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, recovery scientists, and other performance specialists who help athletes to be their best. In this two-part episode, we talk with Doug Chadwick, Director of Mental Skills Development for the Colorado Rockies in Major League Baseball. Doug played football at the United States Military Academy at West Point and served 24 years total in the U.S. Army. Between two combat tours in Iraq, Doug earned two master's degrees and a Ph.D., and while studying at Cal State Fullerton, was mentored by sports psychology guru Ken Rabiza, who was the first to introduce mental skills training to Major League Baseball. Doug also served as the director of West Point Center for Enhanced Performance, where he helped develop an army-wide program to improve mental skills and soldier performance in combat. Now with the Rockies, Doug uses that same training to help baseball players perform better under pressure. How are we doing? I'm good, Doug. How are you? I'm doing well. It is a rainy, rainy Friday here in New Jersey. This is why we're down in the South, although it is a little chilly this weekend, but uh, nothing like up there. I uh, don't. (laughs) We kind of made like a lowercase U around the United States and we were deciding where to live. It's like nothing up here, nothing in the middle, probably nothing in the Northwest. (laughs) <laughs> so South Carolina wins. Yeah. Did any was anyone that you did anyone have family from South Carolina or did you just pick that because you thought the weather would be no, great? No, nothing drawing us here other than it was a good place to be. My wife is a college professor. She's at Charleston Southern University, but she's tenure track, but she didn't get that position until we moved here, after we moved here. So there was nothing else. I mean, we looked at it with some of our needs in mind, obviously, you know, the need to be next to the coast, (laughs) the need for nice weather, but also, you know, access to some of the military benefits. The VA is a large VA hospital here. And, you know, some of the things that, you know, a number of schools for her to look at as potential employment. Did you move to South Carolina before or after you started with the Rockies? So I was retiring in 16 and officially wasn't retired until like the end of June, but I had a ton of leave accumulated. So I actually finished in April and basically I was up at West Point, family still down in Athens and I was finished like on a Thursday. And then like the following weekend, I was in Rome, Georgia with our Asheville team and uh, started with the Rockies immediately. But we moved, we built a house here, so it wasn't done until July. Uh, but it was already a decision at that point. So that I, I have two questions about. So first of all, the Rockies didn't care where you lived as long as you could travel to see the team. Right. And my second question is, so you're obviously, you retired in, what was, did you say 16, 16 it was? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're retiring after 24 years in the army, yet you're about to basically start this whole new career. So does retirement right. have the same meaning for someone who's retiring from the army? No way. No way. <laughs> you know, I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, I don't know. I don't like look at, oh, I'm going to retire, retire at 65 or whatever. I mean, this this job, as long as I can do it well, I could see myself doing it as as long as I possibly can. So, yeah, I mean, retirement was just a transition point. You know, officially it's retired from the military, but, uh, you know, not retired, retired. 
Yeah, I certainly didn't look at it that way. It was no transition point. You have your whole life in front of you. (laughs) There's plenty of time to do this work. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of people don't really get to that point in their careers until, you know, about this age where they're actually, you know, really proficient at doing the work. They've got a lot of experience. And uh, and the military helped me with that, you know, being able to work within different contexts, certainly as the military programs started, and I was involved heavily with that, but also getting to work with the Division One athletes at West Point, and also some of the professional athletes that I was able to encounter, professional teams that came up to West Point, you know, being, being able to work on occasion with Ken Revisa and those folks with athletes from different levels. So I was able to gain a lot of experience throughout the military experience, even though I had to intertwine it with the combat stuff and the the traditional army jobs. So what are you doing right now as we all wait on pins and needles to see what's going to happen with the MLB lockout negotiations and the federal mediator and and whatnot? (laughs) Yeah, a couple of things. Internally, it's, you know, we get prepared for camp. So creating, you know, uh, projects and products and materials and putting together our plan for how we're going to work with the different athletes, the different ball players from the major league level and then on the lower level, because that looks a little different typically. Um, not as much group stuff with the uh, with the major league players and trying to be as interactive as possible. We've got some more capabilities, some additional personnel. So helping to onboard them. Um, so that's the more internal stuff. And then my involvement with the group across baseball. So interacting with the representatives at the major league level to create some more clarity on the different roles of practitioners in the field. So there's some of that conversation going on right now as well. But yeah, we're in a holding pattern. It really just restricts our ability to communicate with the 40-man players or Mm -hmm. players who were free agents, uh, but were on the 40-man roster last year. So before we get into more of what you do on a day-to-day basis, I do want you to tell us a little bit about your athletic background. What did you do growing up that led you to play football at West Point? Yeah, I always kind of start with, you know, I moved down this path on the user level first. So even early on, which was really unusual, I was playing all kinds of sports. I was from a smaller town in in Southern California, and we had a great cohort of friends who competed against each other, mostly in a healthy way. But, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) We all grew up, um, you know, playing everything because it was a small town and there was a group of, you know, young athletes that uh, were kind of expected to play, you know, as much as many sports as possible. So it started early on with baseball and soccer and travel soccer and California club soccer. And then as it became more clear that I was genetically predisposed (laughs) to be a football player, I got into both football and wrestling, and then continue with baseball all the way through high school. Uh, but I guess what was interesting was my mother was a nurse, and she was practicing some of these things at her you know level of understanding. But just the imagery and relaxation, stress management piece, you know, she was helping me integrate that into my sport experience at a time when that wasn't that common, mm. and just coincidentally, her inspiration for that was a class she took at 
USC when she was a freshman from a woman who ended up being my mentor's mentor when he was doing his PhD program at USC in the early 70s. So that weird coincidence kind of got me into this as just, this is part of what you do as an athlete. And then getting to West Point, so I was recruited for football and not knowing any different, being there, there was a center that was doing only the performance work. We had a center that did the clinical work and a center that did the performance work. And that's really unusual even to this day. There's not that kind of distinction, even at the power five schools in the NCAA, but we had that early on. That was just, we were exposed to it and it was part of your experience as an athlete. What year was that? This was, so I got there in 93. And so that was pretty early on to have a distinct center. Maybe, you know, you have one or two practitioners, they teach and they do other things at the university. That wasn't the case. This was just performance-based practitioners doing the work with the athletes there. So unusual stuff. What made you specifically, so obviously when you go to West Point, most kids, you know, or at least a lot of them anyway, have a goal of staying in the army. What made you want to join the army? Well, you know, for me, it wasn't that appealing coming out of uh, Southern California and looking at, you know, the opportunities to play football at other places. And, you know, so moving across the country, to a school that is inherently difficult in many ways. I wasn't real excited about early on, but I had people in my circle, influential people, coaches and counselors, and of course my family, who really understood what kind of an opportunity that was just for the college experience, just for you know that educational aspect. So that's what drew me there, the opportunity to get a great education and play Division I sports. So to be clear, it was it was the 90s, you know, in the mid 90s, we had won the world. (laughs) You know, know, there was no more. The wall came down in Germany and the uh, Soviet Union had sort of collapsed. And, you know, there really wasn't this intense mission to get ready for something while, while I was at West Point. So, you know, it was a bit of a soul searching experience. Like, you know, why am I putting myself through all this? And then what, you know, then what am I going to do in the military? That kind of, those kinds of questions existed for a number of years, even postgraduate, even when I got into the army, it really did seem like we were sort of going through the motions and I didn't plan to stay in beyond my initial commitment of five years, but the world changed. And it's certainly some things that not forced, but really came, you know, into light that it was time to stay in and time to do more. So I know, and and you can tell us a little bit about this, but one of those things was 9-11 for you, but 9-11 was in 2001 and you ended up staying for 24 years and didn't retire until 16. So you stayed long after that. What what made you continue over and over to re-up, especially when you were doing many combat missions overseas? Right. Great question. I think you know, 9-11 certainly was a turning point for me and my wife. You know, we had no kids at the time and I was one foot out the door. I had already sort of resigned my commission and I was finishing up that last fifth year and had done some other education and some things that really prepared me to do very different things outside of the military. And we made that choice after 9-11 to try some different things and, you know, see what we could do to contribute to what was certainly going to be a, a more complex time and a necessary time for the military. So that drove that decision. 
But the things that kept me around the leadership opportunities, the opportunity to influence not only you know the soldiers under my command and, and things you know in a combat arms context, but also the carrot, I guess, was the education that they continued mm-hmm. to allow me to pursue while I was still in the military and the jobs associated with them. You know, something that I was extremely passionate about having the opportunity to do a master's under one of the great practitioners in the field and be mentored by him, Ken Revisa and Ken's, you know, continued involvement with my life and my experiences and then getting to influence army policy on what the continuum of care could look like beyond just reactionary clinical care, doing things to help on the front end to prepare soldiers uh, and even family members to endure some of the things that they would have to experience through multiple combat tours. So it was a combination of those things, you know, getting the opportunity to study this field at a high level and, and become a leader in that regard, but also help the soldiers and their family members through what you know, has been a, an extremely difficult era. So I have a whole bunch of questions. First of all, for those who will be listening who don't know, Ken Revisa was one of the first people to bring mental performance coaching into Major League Baseball. And I'm not even sure what year he started in, but it was a long time ago. What, do like you know? the late 70s, early 70s. 80s. I yeah. don't exactly know what, what period he got into. And that was with the Angels because he was out there in Orange County. But that's, you know, he was a a professor for a very long time at Cal State Fullerton, which is a legendary baseball school. Mm -hmm. And I think that that helped to facilitate that transition into professional baseball. So yeah, he was one of the first, easily one of the first. Yeah. At a time when no one was doing that. I mean, this is mental skills, performance, coaching in baseball is something that's really come around at a total buy-in level, probably over the last five years, right? I would say 10, you know, has really grown across the different clubs in professional baseball. I want to say about 10 years ago, when the professional group formed, there were less than 10 practitioners who represented 10 different teams in that, you know, that was it. There wasn't multiple practitioners within each club as, as it looks today, where in, in the form is more similar to, you know, you've got an athletic trainer, you've got a, a strength trainer, and then, you know, within some clubs, you've got somebody at every level working on the mental skills piece. Really blown up. You mentioned the opportunity to further your education with the support of the Army. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a BS. You have two master's degrees, one in econ, one in kinesiology and exercise science. You have a PhD in philosophy. And you're a CMPC, a certified mental performance consultant. That is a very eclectic education. No question. Um, So I'm sort of, you know, I want to know what drove you to the econ, to the kinesiology. And at what point did you start working with Ken Revisa? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I think I'm done. I I mean, continuing (laughs) education piece, but I don't know if I'll pursue any more degrees. So... I guess this is kind of funny, but that started early on as I was a lieutenant. I came out of West Point feeling humbled, (laughs) (laughs) you know, by that academic experience. And so my first duty station was in Oklahoma. So my wife and I, you know, moved to Oklahoma 
and I'll be I'll be candid here. There's just not a lot to do in, in Southwest Oklahoma. So we had an opportunity to work through a degree through the University of Oklahoma. And uh, that made sense. It made sense. So we did it together. And my wife's now a professor of, of uh, in, a, in a business department. She teaches econ. And, you know, so I haven't used that, that degree a lot. But I did get national championship tickets, not national championship tickets. They weren't in the national champions of football that season while we were there. So I, I had season tickets. But that was more about being proactive, looking at things beyond the Army, you know, not seeing, you know, this protracted experience and seeing it as more, OK, you know, let's do something productive to set ourselves up for life beyond the Army. And it was free. You know, it was something that the Army funded and you know, other than free, you know, the opportunity cost of time, but it was worthwhile. It was certainly worthwhile. So, yeah, I haven't used that econ degree, (laughs) (laughs) but it informs a lot of things in terms of the way you look at the world and why decisions are made. And so then beyond that, I guess the story about getting into the sports psych field really comes into light back in 2004. uh, I took a command in Iraq and it was a really different experience for what we were trained to do. We weren't an infantry company, but we deployed as a stability-based unit because we thought we had won. You know, we thought mm-hmm. mission accomplished in that in, you know, environment. So they gave us half of a capital city of about 350,000 people. And I had the lower half of that city with about 130 guys, 135 guys, and, and not the equipment that was necessary. We deployed with filled with canvas-sided Humvees, and you know that wasn't expected that we would we would experience the things we did in terms of the insurgency and Al Qaeda, and uh, just the instability of the political environment. So as I took the command, early on we lost a bunch of soldiers to injuries, and several we lost three soldiers early on in the combat environment. So one of my first missions with my company, as I was taking over, I was introduced to my gunner and my my driver. And that day the gunner uh, was shot from the turret and, and passed away from that injury. And I'm thinking, you know, going through this sort of crisis moment of how am I gonna do this? And not only hold it together myself, but help lead this unit of, of young Americans, you know, trying to do the things that that soldiers do in a way that, you know, will help the environment. So I started thinking about the performance piece. I started thinking about how I performed under pressure as an athlete. And immediately the ideas that I were presented from the performance psychology personnel that I work with, practitioners. So I reached back to West Point and I started these conversations with some of the people who were back at the center at West Point. And they were thinking the same things, like how do you apply the sports psychology content in a different context? And so we started that dialogue and then I got on the internet and I Googled sports psychology and the story about Ken Revisa came up long before I knew who Ken Revisa was because Cal State Fullerton had just won in Omaha. So I ordered Heads Up Baseball in Iraq through Amazon <laughs> and uh, plugged to Amazon, I guess. But uh, I ordered the book and used it as a guide, as a mental skills guide for myself and for my soldiers. And then had the opportunity after that through West Point, they have these programs to come back as faculty. So then after that, I was able to pursue the master's almost immediately 
redeployed back to Germany, was in Germany for a couple of months in command, and then gave up my command on August 15th of 2005, was in, in Germany, and then in Fullerton the next day, wow. <laughs> registering for classes and starting that Monday. So went through that experience, got to study in residence with Ken, and then back to West Point, other deployments, command and general staff college, and then uh, the PhD. And the PhD was in, you know, it was at the University of Georgia, go dogs, was in the field of, of higher education and, and specifically focused on student development, which I focused more on the student athlete development because of the functions that the center at West Point had, had transitioned to. It became more of a complete student service center, not just a performance site, but all the academic support that exists at West Point as well. So 2005, when you go to see Ken Revisa, and you're still in the Army for another 11 years, and you, you have more combat deployments, yeah. what is your actual job in the Army, and how are you implementing the mental skills that you're learning over the course of that next decade into the actual job that you're doing for the Army? That's a great question, one that I still think about. Um, <laughs> I, had, uh, I was an artillery officer, which, for those who don't know, it means you shoot cannons at targets that are, you know, miles and kilometers away and didn't do much of that work for the last 15 years of my career. As I mentioned previously, my command was an infantry combat team. And then even before that, I was a uh, fire support officer for an Apache unit. And so did some different jobs within that artillery, quote unquote, artillery experience and then got back into the world or got into the world of performance psychology, did that work primarily. Uh, but because of my combat experience, I was helpful, at least, in contextualizing these different frameworks for the combat soldier. And so working with units, along with developing the cadets at West Point, working with operational units, traveling out to different units in the U.S. and Europe even, to help train them, and then went right back into a combat deployment. My combat deployment was as an advisor in Iraq, so I wasn't doing the artillery stuff once again. Very different role. And then coming back and doing the education piece, becoming more informed on operations and, and even strategic level planning, and then going back to do the PhD, and then back to West Point as the director of the center. So really unusual career, didn't do a lot of artillery for the last portion of it, but was heavily involved in the, what we would call the operational side of the army, the warfighting side of the army, in terms of developing the protocols and developing all of these different approaches to the work that are now mostly run by contractors. It was run initially out of West Point, but now have been handed off mostly to the contract world, which is not unusual. <laughs> the, the mental skills stuff has been handed off. Yeah. yeah. So when you're developing these programs, what types of exercises and activities do you do to mentally prepare a soldier to go into combat? So, I mean, part of that is like, these are universal skills. So understanding the impact of the way you think on your emotions and your emotional response, and then the subsequent 
physiological response and your ability to perform whatever it is you're being asked. That's a pretty universal process. So really helping the person develop awareness of how they think and how the way they think impacts the way they perform. So really that's what we're starting with is development of self-awareness. And it really doesn't ever stop because context changes, you grow you know, more information about yourself and the world. So that self-awareness piece is one of the things that we really dig into. And then again, these are universal skills. So if you understand the nature of confidence and your ability to filter things appropriately so that you can maintain some confidence under conditions that may not necessarily give you that feedback that you should be confident. Using some of these different skills and, and training people to filter and understand and filter the way that they think and how that impacts their performance. We talk a lot about motivation and drive, managing your stressors in a, an appropriate way, understanding the nature of the mind-body relationship and how to influence that and then getting into some of the more advanced skills, like not only understanding the way you think, but intentionally focusing the way you think on the type of person or the type of performer that you want to be. So that's using like imagery visualization to not only help you perform something that you know well, so that you're able to do it in under pressure, but also seeing yourself in a powerful way that you may not be able to do immediately, but that helps create that connection between the different neurons in your brain and what you might be expected to do in the future. And then even getting into a more collective role of better communication across peers, communicating up, communicating down, and team building, and then getting to the kind of the highest level of, of effective leadership. Given that this was a new field and you're talking back in the 90s when you we're at West Point, they already had this stuff going on. And then it's the 2000s, basically, when you're implementing it with your soldiers. Was there kind of a universal buy-in or were people like, oh, this is hooey? A little bit of both, for sure. You know, it just wasn't something that soldiers were expected to know early on. And so the resistance often came from senior leaders and more on the, the sort of senior enlisted side, because that was something that didn't exist when they were younger and coming up through the army. So they demonstrated a tremendous amount of resilience to grow through that experience. And one of the ways I put it is, you know, there's kind of this saying with some of the senior leadership, especially on the enlisted side is <laughs> the only way I can tell you different is to tell you louder. And, <laughs> and they had to grow up with that experience and they, they demonstrated a tremendous amount of resilience and then that was the structure of the way that a lot of people led, you know, that that's how you did it. And so helping them understand that, you know, just because that's what you experienced and you were able to persevere under those conditions doesn't mean we should lose soldiers and we should lose young leaders because they aren't able to function or they don't function at an optimal level with that kind of leadership. So it was helping them understand that there's different ways of doing things. And we know this. This is not stuff we've invented. It's grounded in research, evidence-based work. And also the need. The need was there. It wasn't in an abstract context. People had been to war. People had been seen sort of the worst of combat at this point, And they were like, yeah, we need this at this time. 
so that's where I think there was a little bit more open-mindedness than, than there might have been like when I went through when there was nothing going on. So I had Justin Sua on the podcast a while back. He's the mental performance coordinator for the Rays. And after we finished the podcast, he asked me, he, he basically pointed out that I didn't ask him to explain the difference between the clinical side of mental services and mental performance. And I was like, what do you mean? People don't realize that there's a difference? And sort of what you just said about the enlisted guys being a bit more, I don't know, reluctant to embrace this. Is that part of like the stigma against surrounding seeking mental health, you know, help guys with PTSD? It was just something you didn't talk about for the longest time. But that clinical psychology dealing with depression and those actual disorders is something very different than what you do. Yeah, that's a great point. I think the way we describe it now is that there is a continuum of care. And so that you have professionals, clinicians who practice on the clinical side, which is oriented on mental health. And so that mental health piece is a bit of a, it's a treatment and prevention type of model. So you're giving, if you're on the uh, front end of things in terms of training, it's really prevention of pathology. That could be depression, anxiety, addiction, eating disorders, you know, things that are considered pathology or treating people who are, have already been diagnosed. So that's the one side. And then in the middle, you have mental wellness, which there's crossover between the different practitioners in terms of just normal daily practices that'll help with maintaining wellness or developing a more healthy lifestyle. And then there's the performance side. And the performance side is oriented on optimization and, and pursuing excellence and actualizing your potential. And so where that was early on, that was people practicing generally across the continuum. People like myself are only educated and trained and have experience working from the wellness side to the performance side. So it's a really, it's become specialized. And there are people, there are clinicians who practice across the continuum, but at least in baseball and some of the, the professional sports at this point have seen the value of specialization in that training. And there are folks who practice only on the clinical side and then folks who practice on the performance side. I feel like there still are so many people, I guess, who think coming to see a mental performance coach means you have some sort of anxiety or depression. Whereas in reality, it's just, I want you to make me the best performer I can possibly be. We're not saying you're depressed. We're just saying we want you to better focus on hitting the baseball when there's 50,000 people screaming at you. Right. <laughs> and so the stigma still exists. I would say because, you know, even in the military, it's obviously not isolated to just men. But you, know, you think of the environment and the masculinity associated with that environment really extends into most of our professional sports, at least you know, between MLB and the NFL and NHL and NBA, you're dealing with young men who have that resistance to getting help. And whether that help is oriented on the clinical side or just the performance side, there is a stigma related to it. But I think, I believe, and we've seen it unfold, is that when you separate those professionals across the continuum, better understand that there is a distinction between the performance and the clinical care. 
And it's up to all of us to help reduce that stigma. So, you know, for myself, as a person who's benefited from clinical care after a couple of intense combat tours, I'm an advocate. It's just not what I do. And so I think helping them understand that it's not only okay, but it's important to get the care that you need. And on the performance side, I think it helps to reduce that stigma when we're out on the fields with them. We're protecting their information. We're, we have we promise them confidentiality in the same way, but we've taken that conversation out of a just a, a counseling type of setting. We're out on the field, we're in the dugouts, we're engaging with them in a very specific baseball, football, soccer track, whatever way to help them understand, hey, this is just about being great. And that, I think, opens the doors for other conversations. This concludes part one of our conversation with Doug Chadwick. Be sure to check out part two and to follow the Colorado Rockies on Instagram and Twitter at at Rockies as we head into the 2022 Major League Baseball season. Until next time, for more information on Food of the Gods or to download other episodes, visit us at foodofthegodspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at at foodofthegodspod or email us at foodofthegodspodcast at gmail.com. Food of the Gods is a Digitant Podcast production.